Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tivey. Today, we're going to talk about Mary Harrington's uh, most recent article about, um, it was titled, Our Humanity Depends on the Things We Don't Sell. And the general thesis of the article uh, went through the, the sticky moral issues around how we've sort of mobilized resources and even human relationships uh, as transactional items to be sort of sold on the market and where that kind of runs into our moral intuitions uh, about which things properly belong in, in more permanent relationship structures. So, Mary, uh, welcome to the podcast again. We've had you before. Thank you for uh, having so, me. Yeah, so glad to have you again. So let's, I, I don't think we need to go over the article too much if the audience wants to read that. Uh, you know, now would be a good time to pause and, and go read that. The The reason that I wanted to bring you on was the article kind of opened up a bunch of really interesting lines of inquiry, especially into this issue of transactional versus relational modes of economy and modes of being in society. And it felt like there's so much to say on this topic, and I really wanted to dig deeper with you and see if we can kind of come to a better understanding of what is the proper domain of the transactional? How does it how does it work? What does it do for us? And what is the proper domain of the relational? How does it work? What does it do for us? How are these things related in society? So if you have any sort of immediate thoughts to kick us off, things you wanted to say following on your article, uh, go right ahead. Otherwise, um, I can try to uh, get us started. If I start now, I probably won't stop. I'm curious, Wolf, <laughs> to hear um, what you what first comes to mind for you in terms of what the the proper the proper domain for the relational. I mean, when I I will start yeah. actually. Um, Go when for I, it. <laughs> when I, I I started writing the piece really out of a very sort of embedded experience. I mean, what I was what I was trying to convey very strongly over the course of the article was something of an experience of embedded relationship. So what what it's like to be or to step in as much as we can today outside the transactional domain of sort of monetizing ourselves and leveraging ourselves as resources and into mm -hmm. something a little bit more relational. And for me that that experience is grounded very strongly in in my experience of being a mother. Right. And the and the ways the ways in which that just completely isn't it completely radically resists um, this transactional exploitative instrumental um, approach to right. life and and the world um, and why and my 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 thesis in the article of course is that um, it's it's because you know in a very concrete sense you know particularly as a woman you, you once you've gestated and birthed and breastfed a child you know it's a, it's a very concrete experience of not entirely belonging to yourself in, right. you know you I, I routinely when my daughter was still nursing woke up in the night a few seconds before she did when she was hungry you know i know mothers who are who are breastfeeding nearly 2 year olds who who know when their child is hungry even if they're physically some miles away you know this is this is not actually very unusual when you talk to women who are mothers right. um and and that's that you know it's it's not the only domain in which we don't belong entirely to one to to ourselves but it's it's the easiest i think to grasp in in a world and a discourse and a culture which really doesn't make very much space for that kind of experience at all. So I sort of I think I wanted to kick off with that because because it really is 
um, it, it, it's the absolute foundation of my of my thinking about this this sort of duality, and and it, it and it's a it, it's of critical importance in um, both both kind of. You know, I, I want to sort of carry keep that grounding in mind when we start thinking about the transactional and the relational, because in in a sense, there's nothing abstract about it. I think that's where right. I really wanted right. to start, and it's very easy to get off into abstractions, particularly when you start using words like transactional and relational. Right, right, but I, right. But I really, I really want to emphasize the concreteness and the embeddedness of it. So I guess right. that would be my starting point. Great. Well, I, I'll I'll echo that. So as a father, I I know. I mean, obviously, I don't have the sort of twenty four seven you know birth and uh, breastfeed experience, but uh, as a father, I'm I'm also very aware that you know I there are these other people my family who are totally depending on me. And uh, it's it's not a relationship of, of transaction whatsoever, right? It's not like, oh yeah, we've come to deal to uh, come together to like make this make this deal and and you know we're transacting and then maybe we'll go our exactly. separate ways. It's like no we've 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 become one thing that is inseparable um, exactly. and, and interdependent. And yeah, so I just wanted to echo that. That's a great kind of solid concrete grounding for what we mean by this relational you have these things that are bound together in mutual uh mutual necessity and 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 interrelation uh where they can no longer really be separated without really breaking something uh -huh. really um you know obviously they could be separated but it really it, you're breaking something by yeah. separating them whereas in a transactional relationship you know the the a transactional relationship. I mean, the, the the most transactional relationship is like, you know, I I need to I need to buy some some commodity, and I go the, go to the market, and I and I you know buy it right. Like maybe I right. go to the farmers market and try to buy some meat or something, and and it's very transactional. You know, if that person wasn't there selling it, or if, if they disappeared, or I had no access to them, you know, it doesn't. It's it's not a. It, it doesn't break anything. So yeah, that's that's a good kind of concrete foundation. As for where I kind of come at this, uh, your original question, how, how do these things relate, this transactional relation and relational? I'm going to come at this from a you know the very abstract uh, perspective. Um, I'll try to keep it concrete, but but I think I think we have to use some abstraction here. So just to I, I just to sort of set our grounding, I. I I think Aristotle's idea of a self-sufficient community is an interesting thing to examine from this perspective, that there is this sense in which even up to the level of a city-state, people are relying on each other and there is this relational superstructure to that thing. It's not a transactional uh, thing. It's it's a relational thing. It's like Aristotelian self-sufficiency is about the thing is not actually whole until it's participating in something that actually is up to this level of self-sufficiency. And so I think this is this concept that I want to bring in is this idea of a self-sufficient being or society or city-state or whatever. And then relational pieces or re relationships, uh, relational relationships as opposed to transactional relationships are kind of the 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 structure of of that thing, right? So you have these things bonded together in these harmonious relationships. They have some some like 
I don't know how to describe it, but but a, a specialization maybe or an interdependence where, you know, I'm doing this job, you're doing that job. We totally depend on each other and doing those things for each other. So there is this, even, even though like a city has a market and so on, the actual structure of the thing insofar as the city is a thing itself is is relational. So this is kind of like, a grounding that I wanted to bring into it is this larger kind of idea of the political community and the relationships between the parts and the people of a political community. And those seem like relational things. Mm -hmm. That seems like a relational thing. Yeah. I mean, this is something, funnily enough, I I think about a lot. Um, I'm interested in the transition from the feudal economy to a market economy. Um, mm-hmm. Which is which is something that's that's actually it's written into the landscape around where I live. Um, one of my favourite running routes um, goes through what for for Britain, not certain not for the United States or Canada, but for Britain right. is is a pretty empty area. You know, you sometimes you don't come across a dwelling for maybe three or four miles at a time. But one of my favourite running routes it goes past an abandoned medieval village that's now just a series of lumps in a field uh, with, with scrubby grass. Um, um, but it was it was abandoned in the fifth in the early sixteenth century because the landowner basically ex- expelled the villagers, you know, by some kind of legal jiggery pokery because he wanted to farm sheep there. And so, you know, much earlier than you know, the, there's a, there's a kind of potted history of the market society which is sort of emerging, particularly among people who describe themselves as post liberal, which more or mm-hmm. less more or less starts from I don't know maybe 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 after the English Civil War or thereabouts, and certainly from the French Revolution in the eighteenth in in mm-hmm. the eighteenth century. At least the market society as right. we know it. Exactly I mean, the market society as that. we know it. But you know, every time I run through where the, the 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 lumpy field where Clopton used to be, I think, well, no, actually, enclosures were going on from from the fourteenth century. Um, right. This sort of this this breach, this violation of you know the kind of idealized feudal relationship, which was, as you say, a kind of relational part for the whole, in which you know the lord was understood to participate in and be, in a sense, interdependent with his um feudal vassals and so on you know there was there's a kind mm-hmm. of there's a sort of I- ideal there's a sort of there's a whole political theory of how feudalism is meant to work and in practice it kind of it wasn't always like that you know perhaps sometimes it was right. but you know the reality the reality on the ground was a lot messier and the direction of travel towards this much more sort of abstracted um, relationship in which people are kind of free to come or go as they please um, actually began much it began much earlier than than we'd maybe like to think um, I think it's I mean you know one way you can go with this is to say it's well it's easy to idealize the middle ages from the point of view of uh, market society but also I think you know it's it, it's kind of it, it's important it's important to think about you know how these polities how these polities may have worked in practice and also in a sense right. the directionality of the kind of you know political the larger political environment in which they exist mm. yeah I think so so you, I mean I mean certainly certainly I think you know there are there are templates here which which bear serious consideration because well I mean my view is certainly that we've reached a point of fragmentation now where you know I'd, I'd be willing to try almost anything you know because the alternative is that we all end up living in living in pods and eating bugs and sort of talking to each other via OnlyFans um this is this sort of hellscape um right. Yeah. So you know, I'd be willing to try almost anything, but you know, somewhere in the back of my mind, there's also Clopton, where you know, it wasn't, it really wasn't all sunshine and roses. Yeah, those are good points. I don't, I don't think I have anything sort of immediately to say on that, except I want to kind of 
maybe take one little piece of that and expand it into another thing that I'd like to bring to the conversation, which is um, you mentioned sort of that it's actually messy in practice and you do have these violations kind of as uh, as something that happens. You use violations of these relational expectations where, you know, like I, like I said, there is there was something and that something can be broken if you take apart its pieces uh-huh. and then and and it is occasionally broken in in the process of life and history and so on like it, it does in fact get broken and so i want to kind of expand on that because i think this this also allows us to sort of integrate the relation of let's say a political community or a power structure or like one paradigm to other paradigms the rest of the world the the kind of the outside um and and perhaps uh two parts of itself as well so there's this idea that you come in like let's say let's let's sort of ignore the transactional aspect there is still the sort of let's call it the predatory aspect in these things so, so there's, there's this relational thing going on which is this this stable basis of of things being related to each other in some some predictable way but then often that is out of sync with let's just say the power uh, ba- the balance of power mm-hmm. and power wants to come in and reformat the thing, whether that's, you know, a predator coming in and eating some animal, you know, and violating all the relational bonds within that animal uh, in in eating it and turning it into food or or whether that's, you know, the, this example near your house of the Lord in the in the 16th century, you know, deciding that it no longer no longer served him to have this village uh, and finding a way to break those bonds. Um, so there's this, and then I think mining is another example of this, or you know, often in war and so on, where we have a sort of historical necessity of bonds being broken, that there mm-hmm. are these trade-offs between, there's all these possible relationships sitting around, and if you just kept them all totally intact all the time, it would just, it would mean stasis, right? It, it, it's not life. Life involves actually this process of of going and breaking down things that existed and reconstituting them into new things. And so this process is always going on. There's this process of like destruction and renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I want to bring that in separately from sort of what we mean by the transactional thing, because a lot of a lot of the sort of mining and the like exploitative uh, approach to the world and possibly to other people is not necessarily the same thing as as what we mean by like a transactional market society. It's it's this other thing, which is the sort of what I'll call the predatory mode. And I don't mean that with any kind of moral valence to it. It's just like predators are a thing that exist both in the wild ecosystem and in the human ecosystem. And and it's part of the sort of ecological order that there is this creative destruction. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that onto the table. I, I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts there, but I wanted to kind of uh, not have this fall into sort of a, a romanticism of a purely relational mode. Absolutely. That there is, there's this other thing going on that is necessary to, to the existence of life uh, as such. Well, we had, to, we had to teach our daughter pretty recently that some animals eat other animals, which actually was, right. it was a much more difficult conversation to have than I expected because so much of the contemporary culture is, is pretty resistant to telling children that, which I think I find very interesting in the, in the context of the fact that you know, we, we, we factory farm animals for meat and treat them right. absolutely barbarously. And I think, but to, to me, I think there's, a, there's actually, 
there's a connection between this sort of sentimental relationship with animals and our pretty inhuman treatment of them in other respects. But we we have backyard mm-hmm. chickens. We don't have very many of them. But um, and as of as of yesterday, we have one fewer than we did. Um, right. because um, around around breakfast time, a fox got into the garden and got away with one of them. Okay. Um, I mean, just on, on the subject of backyard chickens, there is nothing more more guaranteed to get you out of a kind of romantic understanding of what animals are like than hanging out with chickens. Right. Um, like they're they're aggressive and stupid. Um, I mean, they're they're kind of they're kind of fun to hang around with. I like there's a lot of things I really like about chickens, but the, but one thing they're not is particularly smart and. Uh, and they, you or, know, they, or nice to each other, or particularly nice to each other. You know, they're they're aggressively hierarchical in their own social organisation. Although they are very social in their way, you know, they're very yeah. much they very much function as a team. But you know, it's it's based it's based on a sort of straightforward rubric of violence in terms of who gets to be top yeah. chicken. Yeah, no, I remember. I remember one time uh, my uncle has has backyard chickens, and we were over at his his sort of uh, his house on the Sunshine Coast in, in British Columbia, and. You know, hanging out with the chickens. The impression I get is, wow, these chickens are really savage. And also, oh, yeah. oh look, the the uh, each each chicken has one fewer tail feather than the next, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's like, right, exactly. There's the the hierarchy is very visible because yes, they pulled absolutely. out the tail feathers of the of the lowest chicken, <laughs> and the top chicken has all the tail. Feathers. Yeah, it's pretty savage. We have a we have a cockerel as well, um, and he's he can be really aggressive. I mean, he's he's young still, so, and he may get more aggressive as he gets older. Um, but when if you put food down for the chickens, despite the fact that you're the one who just brought him the food, he'll still go for you. You know, he'll fly at you with his with his spurs first, and um, to right. say get away from my food. And the only thing you can do that gets through to him is give him a kick. Right. Yeah. You know, which you know, at that point, you're speaking chicken. You're saying, you know what? Actually, I'm bigger than you, and I have bigger boots than you. And he gets that. But you know, there's no there's no point in being nice to him. They're yeah. just, and you know, I'm not saying. I mean, this is this is really this is a very roundabout way of um, speaking to the the question of you know what what exactly I mean when I say relational. Um, right. You know, I don't I don't mean the the kind of Disney vision of the natural world. Right. Yeah. What I I mean the 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 this what what I think of as a relational domain of you know complex feedback loops if uh, you know things creatures and meanings in mutual interdependence you know absolutely admits of the possibility of violence and certainly of creatures eating other creatures there's no there's no getting right. around that um, we have one fewer chicken today than we did yesterday and it's only it's only within a, a, a sort of worldview which is very severed from that reality that you know it's po- that it's possible to pretend that that's something that we can just look past yeah, um, i i want to I want to uh, expand actually on the factory farming comment a little bit, simply because it's a good illustration of, you know, well, there is this sort of predatory relation or predatory style of relation that doesn't that isn't always synonymous with uh, the sort of brutality and the cruelty uh, that that can be involved there. Like sometimes it is quite brutal and cruel in, in some of the worst factory farms and so on. And then sometimes it's actually, you know, a, it's a fairly harmonious sort of positive, not quite Disney, but, but you know, at least at least a friendly relation between in, in sort of farm, let's, let's say a free range cow that's, that's uh, raised by someone who sort of uh, cares for the cow and, and isn't, isn't sort of approaching in this this inhuman 
uh, factory manner. There's like there's these there's these different ways that even this predatory relation can be like diff- different levels of of sort of the har- harmony within that relationship. Absolutely. I mean, I th- to my to my eye, there's something qualitatively different between the kind of farming of which, which of which there's plenty, which has a sort of participatory relationship with the creatures that are being farmed, in the sense that you know yeah. they're treated they're treated with dignity and accorded something of their own nature. And by 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 a thing's nature, I mean to to illustrate, it's the nature of a chicken to scratch. It's their work. It's just what they do. You know, they're not complex creatures, but they need to scratch. That's just that's how they roll. And if you keep chickens in a in an environment where there's nothing to scratch, for example, standing you know stacked in wire cages, then you're doing something. You know, you're you're separating yourself from the possibility of participating in that creature's experience so radically that I think what you're doing is is profoundly wrong. You know, I don't. Right. I have no other words for it. Um, however, um, you can you can be just as just as much raising a chicken for meat, but keeping it keeping it in an environment where it's able to scratch and generally kind of have its kind of brutal little chicken society. Um, and and then you know you're still taking it to the slaughterhouse at the end of the day, but in the meantime you have you have at least acknowledged that the creature has a nature, um, and it has it has sort of it's it's kind of ordinary behaviour, and you've given it some space to just be a chicken. Um, yeah, well, this, this, you can sort of relate this back again to this feudal village example, right? It, you know, I don't know how it actually was, but you could imagine a case where you sort of have the normal kind of relational feudal relationship between the lord and this village, and then you know, and the thing is is working somewhat harmoniously, rec- recognizing the nature of the peasants and what they're doing, and and giving them their space, and and. You know the peasants are recognizing the nature of the Lord and so on, and then someday the power calculus changes and the the peasants have to be uh, sent off, right? And same same thing like the the the, the realities change and and the the chicken has to be slaughtered or 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 gets slaughtered to be eaten. It's but but the fact that that relationship was broken is it does not mean that the that the relationship wasn't real. It, like there is a relationship there and it can be sort of done well or, or done poorly, even separate from the question of whether that relationship is then broken in a predatory manner. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, one of the things one of the things that sort of falls out of this for me is is a, is a sense that because we don't really have a vocabulary for talking about the ethics of you know, if you like a participatory relationship with other creatures, you know, over which we may potentially have some power, because we don't have any kind of a vocabulary for talking about that dynamic. Right. Um, or, you know, we've we've rendered, you know, any discussion of that dynamic so totally taboo by this discourse of, um, well, any a whole, a whole sort of several hundred years of philosophy that's dedicated right. at um, a, preventing it, discouraging us from thinking like that. Um, but... It, as a as a consequence, we also don't really have very much of a mental vocabulary for talking about how you go about sanctioning people people or creatures at the top of the pile who abuse their position. I mean, right. you know, to give you to give you, I mean, we, we've got the example of a feudal lord at one scale, but if you're going to have if if you're going to posit any kind of a society or a polity or even a family relationship that's based on that kind of absolute commitment, on the one hand, it it requires. A sort of a sort of complete loyalty, a sense of being able and willing to go all in. I mean, you you described that very mm-hmm. eloquently in the context of your own family. You know, there's a, you're you're a, you're you're, some, you're a unit which is complete, and um, the, the the commitment on all part on all sides is absolute. 
and there's mm-hmm. and the, there's no sense of you know I'm I'm doing this for you because you're doing it for me. There's a there's an absolute commitment which comes before the possibility of um, right. say taking turns getting up with the kids. Um, so that's that sort of that, that's that's a beautiful illustration of how it works when it works well at the small scale. And I'm sure there are plenty of great illustrations of how that how that can work potentially at a much bigger scale. You know, if you like polities which are well governed by somebody who's competent right. and capable of doing that, you know, is if you like the sort of political megafauna and who and who doesn't abuse their position. And I think a lot of the a lot of the sort of political anxiety about talking in, you know, because really what we're talking about here is we're, we're kind of talking about the the functioning in practice of hierarchies, you know, whether in families yes. or, or politics. Um, and I think a lot of the anxiety which is provoked about talking about this is, well, you know, how, how are we going to stop people from abusing their position? And I think, you know, the, 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 the existence of factory farms is a great illustration of the fact that, um, you know, shifting everything into the transactional into a transactional domain where everybody's theoretically free to breach to terminate the contract if the other person doesn't live up to it is all very well in some political contexts but a it doesn't it doesn't work very well for families because um, the children don't really get a say in the transaction and their stakes are kind of different anyway. And B, it doesn't work very well for animals. And this really comes back to the point which I wanted to make, which I made in my article, which is who pays. You know, you can, in as much as people are free, autonomous, self-sustaining individuals with control agency and so on, um, shifting shifting human relationships and personal to political dynamics as well out of the uh, relational domain into a transactional one works really well, you know. In as much as I'm solvent and you know have social and cultural capital and mobile, etc., and so on, um, I benefit significantly from a lot of those changes, and you know I get I get a reasonably good deal out of the market society. Um, but in as you know, if I'm if I'm somebody who maybe you know doesn't have doesn't have much social capital or you know is in need of camp, you know if I'm if I'm profoundly disabled, for example, or if I'm an animal and you know I'm a, I'm a nonverbal creature, and who who isn't who isn't a, a, who isn't able to participate in that kind of a dynamic of notional equals, then I'm the one who ends up paying because. Because yeah. within within the transactional logic, it's it's presumed that everybody is an equal partner, and in fact, that's well, not the reality. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's not able, that's not true. That you're able to represent and defend your own interests yes. in, in yes. the transactional sort of Thunderdome. Yes, exactly. You know, and if if for whatever reason you're you're playing Thunderdome with one hand tied behind your back, then the, there is there's no in a, in a, there's you know, you're automatically vulnerable and, and there's very little recourse for you. Very little sort of, very little yeah. is going to come to your defense. Yeah. And I, so when you were talking about how kind of the thing reaches, the transactional society reaches its limits uh, with children and animals and, and other cases like that, I think I want to add to that, that the relationships between people are not in fact equal in 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 that sense. Like there are people who you know, aren't sophisticated enough, not not to say that like they are falling short of some standard, but just like relative to someone else. There are people who are not sophisticated or powerful enough. They don't have the sort of advantage in the power relations uh, where they're not able to actually uphold sort of that 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 defensive end of of the transactional relationship. And they are necessarily ending up exploited by exploited in sort of a broad sense. I don't necessarily mean to condemn that, but exploited by someone else who is more sophisticated and more powerful. 
and and there is just naturally and necessarily this this gradation in people's ability to to engage in power basically exactly um, and and so you are going to get some people who are in a position of uh subjection of various kinds within society you necessarily have this and and i guess the issue with the transactional mode of being when spread too far is that it actually uh you know doesn't have an answer to that right it it and i think but i think a point you raised well uh, as well is is that we don't really have a vocabulary outside of the transactional frame of reference either we don't have a vocabulary for talking about hierarchy and subjection in like when like what kinds of subjection is just right we don't have a vocabulary for that and 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 this comes up very obviously in the in the case of animals where you know we we definitely have this relationship of uh sort of mastery and subjection with animals and and we do have this sort of notion that there is something like abusive and non-abusive forms of that relationship but it's 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 our concepts that are crude and then often people are are sort of taking a different frame and biting some bullet where they say actually we have to get rid of animals because we can't relate to them in an equal way they don't say it in those words but that's kind of what's going on i think with a lot of the 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 vegan um mm-hmm. modes of thought uh you, you see these things they they come out of especially oxford i think um i don't want to i don't want to be too mean about oxford but I, I many many weird moral ideas come out of oxford in relation to like we need to pave the amazon and so on because because like the animals are are sort of living a mode of existence that we cannot admit in our moral system but but we see this challenge with with the animals but i think again it applies to human society perhaps even more that there are these relationships of subjection and we don't have a great vocabulary for distinguishing uh sort of abusive and non-abusive forms of that like and i think i think one of the big assumptions that gets rolled out in a lot of these discussions sometimes explicitly sometimes implicitly is that all relationships of, sub- of subjection are abusive i mean and- you know perhaps if we, we we could we could try reframing and i mean so subjection is a provocative choice of words sure. and i and i think there's that there's there's something to be said for choosing a provocative word but you know you you could just as equally talk instead about relationships of subjection you could talk about relationships of responsibility or stewardship right. Right, you know, because there are there, there are sure. There are... Maybe let's use that word. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm using subjection just to just to like to make to make it clear what you're talking about. Poke the audience a little bit. Like, <laughs> sure. I, I want you guys to be challenged a little bit. That, that like kind of accept that this thing is real, that it's happening in our society. But yeah, let's flip it around a bit. Uh, let's talk about relationships of responsibility and stewardship because I, I think it's the same thing. Um, but we don't have a great vocabulary for that. And, yeah, and it's, it's I think that was a great point that you raised. Yeah, it, it, it's challenging when, when you think about when you think about the different the different emphasis it places it places to talk about responsibility and stewardship versus subjection. I mean, it really that that really does draw out the the tension at the heart of you know our sort of contemporary relationship actually to thinking about hierarchy at all, right. or you know sort of relation relationships in which people you know in order for the relationship to work have to be 
vulnerable to one another and where potentially one party will be more vulnerable than another. And, right. I, and I feel like, you know, if we're talking about these two, the, 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 the transactional market mode and, you know, a more, a more kind of relational way of organizing things, you know, the problem, the problem in a market society is that we don't have any language for talking about it at all because we pretend it's not a problem. Or we sort of, you know, try and try and sweep it under the table, and you know, we keep we keep all of our chickens in barns, and then slaughter them far away, and then get them in packets from the supermarkets, so that we don't right. have to confront the fact that somebody's got to kill the creature. Um, but right. in within within the relational dynamic, you know, there's there's the intractable problem of, you know, what, what do you do when a feudal lord goes bad? What do you do with the robber barons? What do you do with the abusive husbands? You know, and I don't, I think, you know, if we're, you know, for any sort of a substantive engagement with, you know. If with hierarchy and or, or with if, if we're to flip it around and talk about relationships of stewardship and responsibility rather than subjection, we've also got to grapple with the question of you know what you know in what ways do you meaningfully approach sanctioning um, people in positions of responsibility who abuse that? Right. Well, this is this comes down to we need a good theory of justice in asymmetrical power relationships. Yes. And precisely. Uh, like we need to know what are the responsibilities of the stronger party in those relationships or the superior party or whatever. Um, what are what are the responsibilities and what are we what standard are we sort of holding them to in terms of how they treat their their subordinates or their 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 dependents or whatever you want to call them in a particular case? It seems like and and that kind of has to derive from what is the nature of that relationship and and what is its functional nature. Uh, within the larger whole of society, it's it's sort of like there's there's two kind of sides to this, right? One is there's the the power relationship itself, the actual balance of power, how how the power landscape results in these these kind of relationships of you know someone someone has power over someone else, just to, to sort of put it most neutrally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side though is the functional sort of teleological interpretation of the structures in society where society itself is kind of approaching being a an organism of some kind and uh its its parts have relationships to each other where you know they're 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 doing things for each other and working together on some thing that they're doing for society you know like if you examine the feudal structure as a functional structure of relationships you see that while the purpose of the lords in this structure is to be the sort of political immune system also the strategic leadership uh and and the the military defense of of the realm right and then the purpose of the peasants is to you know produce all the crafts and and foods and everything that everyone depends on there's sort of these these relationships of of function, not just of power. And the power relationships and the function relationships are are often closely related. But these, I think, are the things that you have to kind of... And then I guess one additional part is this notion of harmony, I guess. There's this notion where things are being treated in accordance with their their proper nature, or or you have sort of explicitly canceled that nature and destroyed them. Um, in some sort of ritually correct manner, uh, as as we do when when in, sort of in an ideal sense, killing animals or kicking people off their land or whatever, but but there's this this relational harmonious side of that, and these I think are sort of the three 
maybe there's more, but those are three components I think that are, that are necessary to be grounding any kind of uh, concepts of justice in this area. You need to have a clear understanding of the reality of the power relationships. You need to somehow ground it in in this sort of the, the responsibilities implied by the functionality of the relationship. And then uh, then there's you also need to ground it somehow in the the responsibilities implied by sort of our our desire for sort of mutual moral harmony with each other's nature. Yes. I'm just gesturing here. I, I you know, I don't have a theory, right? Mm. I, or or I, you know, I'm trying to think about this, but but I I think that's where we have to start. Yeah, I mean, a, an area an area that I've been delving, dipping my toe into, and I feel like I need to read in much more deeply is the genre of political theory that was that was common-ish from maybe the 12th through to about the 18th century which is the mirror of princes genre right um in which were if you like instruction manuals that were written for um absolute rulers yeah um and then the you know they there are some famous ones i think the last the last very influential ones probably machiavelli's <laughs> which has mm. kind of kind of uh, sounded the death knell for mirrors of princes full stop, or at least the beginning of the end. Mm. Um, but the the older examples of the genre, my my knowledge is is pretty hazy and mostly secondary sources, unfortunately. But older examples of the genre, you know, tend to tend to situate um, a monarch, you know, within within a much larger sort of cultural and spiritual context and, you know, with, with references right. to classical antiquity and, you know, to to the Bible and to the, the larger sort of uh, medieval Christian understanding of what the world is and how it works and how the parts of it interrelate and also, right. you know, how the divine relates to the human. And, right. you know, what the, I suppose... And when I when I think about, uh, I've been delving into it, and I've been thinking, well, you know, what, where, if at all, would we find something analogous today? Because I was, I've been thinking, no, nobody is writing mirrors of princes in the modern in the modern West, not as such. The closest, well, there's, no, there's no princes. <laughs> well, in theory, in theory, no, but in, in in practice, you know, probably the closest example I can think of, you know, in terms of you know books that are designed are written for leaders, is business literature. Right. Um, and I've I've been wondering if there are interesting interesting and fruitful parallels to be drawn between the medieval mirrors of princes and contemporary business books aimed at sort of would be would be kind of MBA haircut types who are who are hoping to go on and become CEOs. Um, yeah, and you know, this I, is, I think. Sorry, go on. I, yeah, I've read a little bit of that kind of literature, and I mean the 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 things that it often contains it's if you sort of frame it as as being parallel with these mirror of princes kind of uh tradition but also i think older traditions of just philosophy as it engages with political power um it's a lot of discussion of wisdom a lot of discussion of sort of integrity and the the right way to do things and why that's the right way to do things um and where where there's sort of this I think one of the one of the interesting things uh, is is this kind of close relationship between justice and functionality, where to put your organization into a highly functional state is often closely related to it 
being also in its in its most just state. Like I think in business, one of the one of the key examples of this, or one of the stories I've heard, is is the story of the the Toyota production system. Yes, uh, um, I'm familiar with it. I, no, I'm not sure I, if I've got my terminology straight, but some of the related terms are things like Kaizen. Um, but the basic idea is that the workers want to be more productive. The bosses also want the workers to be more productive. And here's this system whereby everyone can be more productive. It's not uh, like it, prior to the Toyota system uh, getting kind of like adopted into the West, we, though I think like back adopted, like I think they actually copied it from some of the some of the western stuff uh that's where they got it in the first place but but prior to that there was kind of this frame in in western kind of management that you know the worker doesn't want to work you have to you have to sort of whip them and and incentivize them and make them work uh and and sort of that that was this idea was that they the the worker is lazy and and the it was interesting to see just the the Toyota system really put the the dignity of the worker as not just as as someone who wants to do their job and wants to do it well as central to the thing, and that that was interesting. And then giving them like explicitly empowering them with the ability to sort of stop the production line or make changes. You know, you know, maybe one day a week or one day a month, you do the kaizen day, and and you you sort of reconfigure how things are organized to make work more pleasant and more productive um, and explicitly giving that power to the workers. And it's just interesting that sort of the, the way structuring the work in a way that makes it work best as a, as a productive community also has this, this, uh, double effect of also increasing kind of the human dignity of the thing and and increasing sort of our, our intuitive senses of justice. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, like a big commonality that I've seen in the business literature, but also in the, in the kind of political philosophical literature is that there isn't that much distinction between what is right and what works well. And I think that's for for a good reason because I don't think there actually is necessarily that much distinction between those when you approach them with sort of the fullest wisdom. I'd be curious to know if you'd come across much of a sense of um, in the in the in the such business literature as you've read on this subject. Um, you know, if we're talking about responsibility and stewardship, whether whether those are concepts that you you've noticed come up. Yeah, I mean that that sort of comes up as as like leadership and so on. And I think it depends on the the work culture as well, like whether whether there is this cultural assumption that firms have responsibilities to their employees or not. I, I think kind of since the 80s in the West, we've sort of de-emphasized that. Um, so it's not not kind of that present in, in more recent business literature, but I think it's sort of a, this idea that lurks in the background for sure. Um, I haven't read that much, though, so I, you know, I may be missing something. Yeah, I, I bring this up because I think if we're if we're to be, well, okay, I'll I'll zoom back a little bit. Um, one of my a sort of a working hypothesis that I have is that um, the business, uh, the corporate world is becoming more oligarchical, 
um, those oligarchies will in the West almost certainly eventually merge with the existing political structures a little like they already have in China with the CCP. You know, to an extent that's already happening. And I think coronavirus right. will accelerate that. So that, that's the kind of background hypothesis to what, what I'm, what, to, to what I'm uh, feeling my way towards here. And I think um, if, if in effect, I mean, what, what that would mean in practice would be um, that the business people who are currently being educated are, are in, are, will be our next princes. Because once you have once you have a merger of the business and the and, and the political world, you know that that's in effect what you have. You have you have yeah. princes again, and that's you know if that's if that's just what's coming, then we're going to have to figure out ways to live with it. And we're going to yeah, have to find yeah, ways we, to we adapt to, to it. Again, we have to find how how does a justice apply. So I think where I'm I, where where I'm going with this is that we need a very we need a critical re-engagement with the mirror of princes literature, and we need to ask whether the literature we're currently making available to our leaders is actually going to. Um, encourage them to do a decent job for those who are in a relation, as I use your word here deliberately, of subjection. Right. You know, and and in that case, you know, that if there's a if there's a conspicuous absence of words like responsibility and stewardship, for example, and you know, and and as such, work cultures are being fostered in which that's not really that's not really understood as something which is particularly important or even necessary. Then we have a problem. Yeah, and I think I think you know, like I mentioned, with especially since the '80s, we've had um, the growth of a business and general political culture in which concepts like stewardship and responsibility are de-emphasized. Uh, again, it comes back to this whole like management consulting, financialization sort of mode of organization that's been uh, that's been pushed over this these last few decades. And it's um, I think there is what you're talking about there with yeah, simultaneously a large growth in sort of the political entrenchment and political power of the largest businesses and a loss of census of responsibility and i think like this this in some sense is kind of where we want to take palladium right we want to take not necessarily the business thing in particular but but just recognizing look we live in this relationship uh where there are people who are powerful and there are people who are not so powerful and we want to provide useful information to the people who are powerful that can help them do their job better and and yeah, that does mean kind of taking responsibility for their position uh, and, and understanding that you can do it better by emphasizing those bonds of responsibility to your subjects. And I think, I think that you're right, that we have not had very much of that emphasized recently. I mean, this is in some sense, again, the, the thesis of Palladium is that the whole political culture has gotten into this kind of transactional mode, even in the elite, where the the mindset is kind of like, I'm just going to extract, you know, it's their own fault that I'm able to extract all the money and power from them. I'm just going to extract it and then kind of make sure my kids get into the right private school and make sure that I get my nice, quiet suburb and so on. Like this, this is kind of like the height of height of aspiration that you see. Um, or, or even more, more vulgarly, like you see these kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, sort of like lower class, get rich quick types where, where they really flaunt and, and aspire to that. Like, yeah, I'm just taking money from the rest of society and I'm going to go live well for myself and I have no, no particular responsibilities to anything. 
Um, and and that this is the aspirational ethos that seems most dominant right now. People don't have an aspirational ethos of, of you know, dare I say, a more aristocratic mode where it's like, yes, I have power over society and here's how I'm going to use that to responsibly govern society towards some notion of justice, not just in this abstract, like telescopic sense, but in the sense of I have I have a like a, a justice that's founded on on relationships rather than transaction. Actually, this is an interesting thing to bring up. Uh, just the, the, the way that even our sense of justice has shifted to a transactional mode. Like when I think about justice, I'm thinking about proper forms of relationships within something like a, you know, a family or a political community or whatever. And the, the proper ways for the things to relate to each other, the proper ways for people to treat each other within that structure. But when we think about justice in sort of the current discourse, it's all about, you know, well, I, I need to go and fight for someone on their behalf that's far away. I don't have any existing relationship with them. I don't intend to build any relationship with them. I'm just going to go in and like drop some of my money or use some of my privilege or make a little fight and get in and get out. And it's this transactional thing where justice is actually not something that you do. It's not something that is a property of relationships. It's something you almost buy on the market. Mm -hmm. And I just find that interesting. Mm -hmm. there's, this, there's this interesting way that as we've dropped kind of a vocabulary for a relational understanding of society that also has transferred over into our theories of justice. Uh-huh. Uh, looping back to the the word aristocratic you used, which I think is I, I think it's a useful and important word to pick up in this context. Because if we're if what we're if the direction of travel in Western societies is as I as I hypothesise back towards princes, and I I can't see any way that can not end up happening, then a, a society of princes, but without an ideology of princedom is as we've as we've already said not going to bode very well for ordinary people. Now, I'm, yeah, I'm, it's an I'm, oligarchy I'm thinking, in the negative sense. Yes, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking in this context about a recent book um, by the urbanist Joel Kotkin, who writes about the coming of neo feudalism. And this is this is a dissection of particularly, I think, the Bay Area culture, which he says is is looking increasingly feudal. In that you have you have the super rich, and then you have the clerisy, who are the the, the kind of cultural arbiters, you know, the the mm -hmm. university types and the people who propagate an ideology which which supports the the feudal class right at the top. And then you have you have the kind of serfs underneath who are living this precarious existence, kind of slogging along, kind of keeping the whole engine going. Now Joel Kotkin argues that he he believes there's still time to to back out of that, you know, by I don't know Re reinvigorating twentieth century union structures, or you know, in mm. some way, in some way, fanning the embers of social solidarity back to life, such that neo feudalism can be reversed by a, a sudden outbreak of um, small scale social solidarity and civic participation, such that mm -hmm. you know, if you, the the colossal and ever growing might of the tech oligarchs will be counterbalanced by. Um, a new, a new kind of middleware of civil society that's able to give them a run for their money. Um, I, with, with the greatest respect to a sophisticated, uh, very carefully argued um, position, I'm, I'm less optimistic than he is. I, I think we're heading back towards princes. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily admit that, that should be called optimism, but I think I agree with you that 
we are heading towards towards uh if not princes at least at least uh oligarchy rule rule of a rule of a small powerful class but i i want to i want to just like my approach to this whole thing is like yeah we're not going to be able to roll back the sort of material conditions the 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 underlying trends uh in in the structures of power but what can be done is is get better ways to think about it that can make the thing work better for everybody even in that structure and i again will well, you know, to bring it back to the difference between oligarchy and aristocracy um, in the Aristotelian sense, where sort of oligarchy is the fallen degenerate form of aristocracy, um, the difference between them is justice, right? The, the, if you have an elite class that understands its responsibilities, cares about its responsibilities, understands that they should have solidarity with each other as, as the class of the state, uh, and understands that they should rule society with justice, not just because it's a good, it's the right thing to do, but but because it's actually a good idea for their for their ultimate uh, accomplishment of interesting goals and 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 for their power and so on. If you if you have those things, then you have uh, actually a fairly decent outcome. Quite. Um, it's, I mean, where where I've been where I've been heading is so that if we're ending if we're heading back towards princes, we also need to be heading back towards noblesse oblige. That's what it boils yes, down to in a exactly. in an absolute nutshell. Um, and uh, so so I, th- I think the interesting question for me is is how 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 to begin that project. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's certainly something we're interested in at Palladium. That's that's what we're all about in a way. I, I want to take this conversation though back towards integrating this idea of the transactional. Um, so far, I think we've had some great conversations, especially in the latter half here of, of what we've done so far. Um, but I think in the first half, we laid out a fairly good kind of ontology for how we're thinking about this relational structures and the, and the issues of relational structure in society. And supposing we have a good sort of conception of the relational, I think we have to show how does the transactional fit into that? Because as we've discussed it so far, one could come away with the impression that the transactional and the relational, the relational are necessarily opposed. And that, you know, therefore to go to this, this kind of uh, relational form of justice is, is to go away from a transactional mode of society. And so I just want to kind of bring in some of Palladium's work uh, and some of the way we think about this in, in how the transactional and, and the relational relate. The transactional, which is to say the market, is this set of social norms and social structures that is created within a larger political order to facilitate economic production in certain domains. And so I think this, this is like the, the key kind of way to think about how they relate. This is, I'm just stating my thesis here, that the, the actual fundamental structure of society is relational. The, at, at the bottom level with families and friends and so on, at the top level with noblesse oblige and, and uh, you know, the, these, these kind of unaccountable power structures that necessarily come to exist and and uh, and overall with sort of the notion of the self-sufficient political community these are all kind of relational notions but within that you have as part of that society you have the transactional domain where we create 
this this structure of relationships and structure of of very small very utilitarian relationships uh very temporary relationships that we use uh to better accomplish our sort of overall social duties and, and better accomplish our overall economic productivity and and that is the market we have the market but the market exists kind of within the teleological structure and within the relational structure of of what is ultimately a relational society i think that's kind of the a, the thesis that i want to put forward i'd love to hear your thoughts on that um that that this is the way we we can reconcile these things and not see them as opposed sure i mean i think it's it's not really for, for me it's not really a question of choosing between the two um so right. much as of emphasis or inflection you know one of the one of the comments i enjoyed most because it gave me food for thought um, for a whole run was was a, a guy who said as as a small business owner you know i think you're i think you're overstating i, I think you're you're overstating the disappearance of the relational because i mean after all you know as a as a businessman it's not as though i don't have relationships with my colleagues my associates my my customers right. and, you know everybody i do business with you know the relational is still there and i had i had to think about that for some time and think about you know what I did or didn't agree with in that, and I, I suppose why, what I came to was yes, that's a fair point. Um, however, um, what I what I was trying to delineate in in the article that I wrote was a shift in emphasis from an, a, a transactional domain within a, a heavily overall relational sort of social fabric to one in which it's mu- it's much more as though there are there are holdout pockets of relationality contained within a larger matrix which is assumed to be almost all transactional or amenable to being treated transactionally as in yes. you know if, i mean as if you're a small you know if you think about the number of small business owners for whom most of their social life is conducted via via business um it, it in a sense you know relationality is still there but it's subordinate always to the transaction and you know what what you're you know what Polanyi argues, for example, is that you know the, it's not as though markets didn't exist in the Middle Age. I mean, in the Middle Ages, you know, there are shambleses that don't, that there are the market squares that date back hundreds if or thousands or several m- many thousands of years. You know, it's not as yeah. though people people only invented buying and selling in the seventeenth century. But you know, the but what's important to understand is the relative emphasis of on on b- between relationality and trade. You know, in the sense, you know, if you if you're thinking about the market and the transactional realm as something which is contained within a much larger matrix of relationality, you know, which is in which mm-hmm. is itself contained within a much larger relation matrix of, you know, relationality understood as the sort of complex feedback loops involved in the natural world, then mm-hmm. you know that that that's several several layers deep of you know, sort of mu- radical mutual interdependence within which. This much more detached, potentially quite quite sort of detached and exploitative dynamic of buying and selling can take place. So I, right. I, I suppose that would be that would be my refinement of your thesis. You know that there, there has been a, an historic change in the relative balance of transactional and relational dynamics in human society, which has brought us you know a number of benefits. You know, in, in terms of individual human autonomy, and there are there are lots of things there which I'd be ambivalent about giving up. Yeah, let's be absolutely clear about this. You know, this is this is not a straightforward. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to go back? Argument, um, but it's also it, 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 this is really about counting the costs and asking whether there's perhaps some things we can do to mitigate some of them. Yeah, I think I think I think you've given a good refinement of it. it yeah, there was a change, and and I think in particular uh, part of that change. Maybe there's two parts or two parts that I want to talk about. 
part of that change is that we lost uh, or, or changed the vocabulary and the ontology and how we think about how these things relate to each other. I think you raised a good point that that it often feels like we have small holdouts of relationality within a sort of sea of transactionality. And that's kind of the way we see society now, especially with, um, you know, a lot of the kind of libertarian discourse through the through the 20th century. We've really kind of gotten into that frame on on how we think about society. And I think there's another change that happened, which is, I think, the thing you're hinting at with saying, well, maybe we shouldn't just go back, which is that we did, in fact, gain an enormous amount of prosperity and capability by changing how our society worked to to this newer set of social technologies. And so I wonder, and, and that's kind of the the creation of the modern markets, the creation of modern capitalism, the modern firm. Um, these are all the things that laid the the legal and economic and social groundwork for the industrial revolution, or perhaps we're we're sort of like co-raised through the industrial revolution. But but those things seem like very very necessary in a way to our uh, to our way of life now, which which has many very good points. Um, what I want to explore is whether we can somehow correct the error or what seems to be the error of sort of taking this transactional mode of being as as the thing in itself, as all there is to it, and, and like our only theory of society in a way, correcting that error while keeping the actually highly functional pieces of social technology that we've event, invented in the last few, few hundred years. This seems like a worthwhile project and it seems very possible that, you know, we don't have to understand, we can understand the world, I, I think correctly in terms of there being this big stack of relational stuff before we ever get to the question of a market. But on the other hand, also having the market having a major role to play in how we do industry. These things seem totally compatible to me, but I think it does require kind of a shift in our thinking. Yeah, I, 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 the short answer is I, I do not know the answer to that one. And I suspect that um, if, we, if we try and shift ourselves out of the our heavily transaction-inflected mindset, we'd find a number of babies, unexpected babies, going out with the bathwater. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, right. I'm not in that sense. I'm not a progressive. I think I, you know, in as much as we ever progress, you know, we 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 lose other things as well. And I, I can't predict what we would lose if we tried. That said, um, I don't see any alternative but to try and find our way again to to an ethic of radical interdependence whether you whether you conceive of that as a gaia mysticism or something much more pragmatic that's just about trying to see the world as it is and, and particularly in seeing the natural world as it is and in its in its complexity and its interdependence and its um, and its nature you know things trying trying to see things as they are and understand you know the the human place within that and to try and try and act within within that larger complexity in a way which isn't isn't just you know Treating treating the planet as disposable. I mean, I know these are 
these are these are things these are sentiments which are often trotted out with very little reflection behind them um but but it's it's clear to me that the, these are these are serious challenges that we're going to have to face in a concrete political way in the next few in the coming decades you know the amazon yeah. the amazon is disappearing at a rate of knots and and we need mm-hmm. we we need a, a pretty profound change in in the way we think about the world if we're if we're to address that um, so, but but I mean, how how you go about doing that? Whether that necessitates some some sort of reinvention of a, a spiritual practice, which can allow that that kind of a mythology to be transmitted without having to kind of get lost in a sea of abstractions, or whether it's possible to, to do that from a sort of secular or an ecumenical perspective, I, I don't know. But these are the, the, these are the, the, the those are the edges that I find myself bashing against when I right. when I, when I come to this. You know, the secular in a, in a sense, secularism and this this transactional detached worldview are to, to me seem seem closely related and you know to find to find our way back to a, a much more a more sort of participatory relationship to the world you know I, I think we'll probably will probably bring with it um, a degree of madness and degree and a degree of mysticism and a degree and a degree of mythology that we have not been accustomed to for some time and that we may find acutely uncomfortable. Right. Um, I, I mean, in a sense, I also think we might as well shrug our shoulders and accept that, like princes, that is also on its way. You know, when you look at you look at the crazy which has just broken out all over the all over the world in the wake of <laughs> coronavirus, I think, well, you know, maybe we should just accept that it's already here. Uh, you know, if if, right. if if this sort of if this unreality is is the new norm, is then we might as well just accept that the the age of reason is over and the the age of the age of LARP and the age of crazy and the age of um, mythology is back and just try, and, try and roll with I mean, it. I, I mean, I, I kind of, uh, I'm still a fan of, if not reason under that name, uh, at least clear and honest understanding of what's actually going on. And, and I think that, I think that we can actually progress to a higher and better level of understanding of these things and just more clarity and more honesty in how we speak of society and speak of what's going on. And I think that that's sort of our ultimate destiny is is more consciousness of more self-consciousness, more awareness of what's going on and that those things actually, they do work. Uh, We just haven't figured it out yet. So with that said, though, I think one route that we might take towards... um, you might call it an ecumenical or, or secular route, uh, but a route towards sort of bringing this relational consciousness back into our, our understanding of how we're solving our problems. One thing we can do, I think, is just try to articulate the world in a relational paradigm and not by, like, I think, I think, the current situation with this kind of uh, nascent oligarchy is, is you know, everyone's kind of talking about the oligarchy. A lot of the people who are honestly speaking about the thing are doing so in a way that is combative mm-hmm. towards, towards that oligarchy. And, and they're, they're sort of inherently putting it in a position where like, well, the oligarchy can't actually accept what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You're, you're still trying to fight them. Uh, but the oligarchy has enough power that that well you can't actually do anything against them um, except cause trouble and then they come and cause trouble for you in return you get this very negative kind of tinge to society mm. and then but then the people who are saying things that the oligarchy wants to be said are mostly a bunch of 
cynics and liars, um, people speaking in euphemisms, um, pe- people kind of distracting everybody with these other other issues that actually aren't the the the, the sort of important things, um, and a lot of that is it's predictable kind of that, that you would get that. But I think it comes from a lack of articulation of the justice of, of what justice could look like from, from the perspective of the, the sort of nascent oligarchy, which I, you know, could, could become something better than an oligarchy. Um, if, if you just go about the world and articulate the relational mode, not as, sort of ammunition against the oligarchy, but as advice to them or friendly friendly articulation of what they're doing well. You know, I don't always live up to this, but I think it's an important thing to do. We need to sort of have empathy with the people who actually have power in the world. And we need to be a better clerical class, so to speak. You know, if we're the intellectual class that's kind of articulating the worldview of power, um, which is, I think, actually a valid thing to do, I think we need to do a lot better of a job at it by bringing in these things like a relational understanding, an understanding of noblesse oblige, uh, and and an understanding of the world through this lens that that doesn't just condemn power, but but says, okay, look, you have power, Here's, here's how you're using that power. Here are the good parts of that. Here are the things to double down on. Right. One of the one of the finest articles, and actually the one that introduced me to Palladium, was the one your colleague Natalia Natalia Deshan wrote right. about um, the the failure of moral self confidence in the the young elite people being trained at Yale, and the 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 wider failure that implied in terms of elite self confidence. And I think this this speaks very. This, this relates very strongly to what you're talking about here. You know, in your yes. view, in your view, if there's a if there's a failure of moral responsibility among our putative princes, then it it behoves the clerical class to do a better job of holding them to um, what they're what they're supposed to be doing. So really, this this comes this comes back to what I mean. We, we the, what you're proposing to do, or what you think it's is it would be a timely intervention. Is it is in effect reinventing the mirror of princes genre. I, yeah, I think I think you're right. It's it's we want to reinvent that genre and and find a way to articulate the value of justice and the and not just the value of justice, but the legitimacy of power. I mean, I, I think maybe I almost feel a little bit, you know, a little bit held back, or a little bit nervous in saying this. But like, I think the way out of this is we have to proclaim the legitimacy of power at, at some level. Right. We have to like. Too much of our discourse has taken for granted the idea that the power is ultimately illegitimate, which which just dooms us to a situation where the power, if the power can never have any basis of legitimacy and any any kind of justice to it, then you know then it's not going to have any justice to it in, in a very in a very material sense. Yeah, I mean there are there are people working in a more sophisticated way on decentralized structures than I ever managed, but one of the most painful. And edifying experiences I ever had was um, trying to w- trying to work with others in a startup company in explicitly in an organiz- in in a form which had no expli- had no hierarchy. You know, we we tried to work as a team in a in a radically decentralized way. Um, it went really wrong. 
you know, I, I, I have a substantial share of the responsibility in that. And this question of, um, you know, radical rejection of hierarchy was one that really preoccupied me at the time. Um, yeah. You know, to the to the exclusion of you know, all kinds of other things, and to the to the detriment of all, all sorts of aspects of my life. Um, but this is this is something which I've really lived into, I suppose you could say. This is I have I have bitter experience in yeah. what in what happens when you try and when you try and purge hierarchy from your existence. And when I look at when I look at the young people who are preoccupied with power and privilege and, you know, the sort of theology of power and privilege, which is becoming very dominant, you know, I see a lot of young a lot of people who are suffering genuinely and very acutely um, yeah. from a, a kind of a, a kind of a self-perpetuating delusion, which is making their lives really bad in, in ways yeah. which it, it just doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, well, I, I think I think the fundamental idea. I think I mentioned it earlier in this conversation, but the fundamental idea is that power can never be just. Right, exactly, and and so so what what ends what then ends up happening is that power power continues to exist, but it exists only in its shadow form, and so in a sense, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because you believe right. power can never be just. You provide no legitimate roots for power, and but and therefore, you know, because things still need to get done, you know, people still need to get up. And get things done, and the you know, organizations still have to run. People still want to do stuff with their life. We don't all just want to sit around, kind of singing "Kumbaya" or communing or whatever. Um, you yeah. know, somebody eventually has to says, "Okay." Eventually, somebody says, "Okay, here's here's what I think the plan should be." At which point, that person yeah. suddenly has power. So that person is suddenly in a position of leadership, and that's just how it works. And yeah. you know, and so, but but then inevitably, you know, if you if if the general belief is that power is unjust, then what you can end up with is a situation in which everybody's only wielding power really from their shadow side, and that just brings out the worst in everybody. You know, if if I as, yeah. as I was in my twenties, you're you're a bit kind of paranoid and crazy. It will make you really paranoid and crazy. Whereas if you're the kind of person who likes to to kind of get things done mostly by subterfuge and by going around other people, then it'll make you really do that. And yeah. You know, in a, in a sense, you 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 get a lot further just by being much franker about, you know, where yeah. where power actually lies and who's in, who's responsible for what. Yeah, and I, I think I think we need to create a culture where it's possible to get away with being very frank about power. Um, to to bring this to a more concrete example, that's actually quite timely. I don't know when this podcast will get up, maybe in a couple of days, but but on today, which is the fifteenth. Um, yesterday, there was this big incident with uh, Twitter censoring the New York Post, uh, published some, I don't know, some article about Joe Biden's son or something, some hacked materials that show that he's smoking crack or whatever, uh, whatever sort of scandal they've, they've, they've dug up there. But I, the, the content of it doesn't matter so much as, as just the Twitter censored this news publication. I mean, not not necessarily a very respectable one, but but at least an acceptable news publication. And they censored them. They they kicked them off. They they kicked this link off the platform. No one was allowed to to share it. They kicked a bunch of people. They suspended a bunch of accounts, uh, even prominent accounts, the White House press secretary and and so on for sharing this link. So you have this. You know, and then of course there's all this hubbub around that. Like, is Twitter abusing their power? You know, this is totally inconsistent with the other things that they've done. You know, they've got this censorship policy that they're going to not allow hacked materials. But if they actually applied that neutrally, uh, you know, there's a lot of really important journalism that wouldn't make it onto the platform. Like, so there's this whole hubbub around it of this question of like, is Twitter censoring people? Is that okay? And and like, you know, this is this is wrong. And everyone, everyone's getting mad about it. 
we had we made some comments on this, basically like kind of reemphasizing for everybody that the internet inherently kind of has this this sort of editorial and centralizing nature that this is going to be happening. There's going to be more of this. This course is going to be under more editorial control in the future because of just the the way the technicals are working out. But but I think something that's been missed in that discussion is no one has really held the torch of the legitimacy of censorship, which is, I think, you know, because of this general condition in our discourse of the idea that power is unjust and that the only sort of the only kind of pretext you can have for censoring something is is that it violates some neutral policy, um, which is, I think, a lie. Uh, I agree. Like, like to put, I, to I wrote put it something. More... I wrote something a little while ago about hate speech and blasphemy, uh, which most people most people read as a critique of hate speech as being just an update on an, an old fashioned and retrograde business of um, censoring people for blasphemy. People, people, but in in that sense, most people misunderstood what I was doing, which was arguing that society has always had sacred values and it is not possible to have a functioning society without having right. blasphemy laws. Yes, yes, exactly. And and this is, you know, maybe what we were trying to do with with our discussion of censorship is is really emphasize to people, no, look, this is this is a normal permanent thing. You guys need to stop coping with all this decentralization and r- rules liberalism stuff. Just accept that this is a normal thing. But I, I you know, I I feel I also feel that we didn't make our point. And because the point actually is that this is legitimate. Not that it's just like you have to accept it and it's normal and like you have to be defeated or whatever, but it's like, no, it's legitimate. And and maybe this is something that we have to, I, I think this is something maybe we, we have to like emphasize better. We have to learn to say this. We have to figure out some way to say this, that like that there is a legitimacy to these actions of power that are being taken that that derives from something other than the lies we currently tell about it. We currently we tell a bunch of lies about how it's a neutral application of some rules. It isn't. It's 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 an application of the will of the powerful on in the shaping of society. But we have to articulate somehow a way that that can be just. Otherwise, we're going to run into this issue that we've been discussing, which is well, if if it's not just, if it can't ever be just in our understanding then it won't be. Absolutely. And I, just just to pick up on your point, I, well, one point I, I thought you did make very well and very clearly in that thread I, would, I remember reading was the one that, well, I mean, if I remember rightly, you said more or less that centralization of, you know, controls on speech is coming. It's inevitable. It's just there in the technology. And that, that yes. this is... This is an, an, early, an early instance of that happening very, very palpably, but it's going to get more pronounced. Um, and uh, But you also made the point that while the technology control to control speech is centralizing, values are not. Yeah, yeah. The authority, the authority is in, in somewhat of a ray of dis, disarray right Moral now. authority is, is, an, is an absolute rat's nest at the moment um, in a way which the technology to enforce some putative common moral authority is not. Now, yes. I've, 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 with other I've, other friends who are interested in these subjects, I argue back and forth over whether that kind of moral authority, you know, the extent to which that's just imposed from the top down, 
you know, the extent to which ideological conformity is just something you can you can enforce by by the jackboot if necessary, or whether whether it, it whether it necessarily involves a degree of consensus and complicity and or at least people being willing to live with it, you know, that that, that implies a degree of sort of bottom up buy in. Um, yeah. and, but well, but, I mean, but again, both. I think it's that's both. a question of emphasis. <laughs> And you know, depending on your your sort of your your inflection. Yeah, no, it's it's both. I mean, people ultimately people need to accept it. Obviously, on the other hand, power is very powerful, and there are many things. If if the elite thinks one way and the people think another way, uh, you know, you know who to bet on. Right, but but equally, you know, I, I come back I come back often to the the, the monarchies of the Anglo Saxon era in the United in Britain. What's in England? Yeah. What's now? What's now England, um, and the the Anglo Saxons? I mean, they feuded like mafiosi. They were they were really they were vicious, yeah. <laughs> but right. they they were but they had no compunction about killing their kings if they didn't deliver, and and right. you know by by the same token, you know Charles Charles the first, um, you know made a big song and dance about how he was the absolute monarch and he ruled by divine right and everyone should just do as he said and so on and so forth, and and but he didn't deliver and he was beheaded. Yeah, there's this question of legitimacy and and like how many people actually need to be bought in for the thing to work, and you often need quite a few. Machiavelli is of the opinion that it's it's you know it's it's better to be loved than to be feared, but if you have to choose, then you should choose fear because it will get you further. And I think there's there's probably in something in that from a from a political point of view, but but e- equally you know as a counter to that, I would I would offer the the thought that while while it's it's very easy to foster fear, it's considerably more difficult to foster love and loyalty. Yeah. And, well, and, it's, and, and it's, it's love and loyalty that ultimately creates power. Absolutely, right? like, and I mean, you know, if we're if we're bringing this right back to the the question of you know the sort of the right the the, the proper relation of a, a sort of relational understanding of things to you know a positive way of moving forward in these in these strange and uncertain times when we really do seem to be coming profoundly to the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. I, I would say that you know we we have some we we have some quite good theories of power. What we don't have what we almost completely lack is theories of loyalty. Yeah, and actually, I, I just want to, I think this is maybe a good place to wrap it up, but I want to I want to uh, reemphasize what I just said, that, that I think this is a, maybe a new insight for me, at least, that, that, it's that it's loyalty and love that actually create the power. And you can use that power to strike fear into everyone else and keep them subjected, but to actually create power, to get more power, to to be able to do new and better things, you need people to be enthusiastically bought in. Yep. You need people to be enthusiastically cooperating. Yep. And it's that enthusiastic cooperation only comes from love and loyalty and belief in what you're doing yep. and the belief that you're actually delivering. And and that I think is should be one of the major targets when we're thinking about, you know, in these asymmetric power relationships, what are we optimizing for in the relationship? How do we want this to go? Are we just trying to keep them down or do we actually want to recruit them into our program or whatever our program is? I, I, and I think this is this has to be this understanding that like there is this asymmetry. You know, fear can definitely keep you in power. You can keep them down. You can uh, you can hold your position. But to really create power, to really be able to do interesting things, you need that enthusiastic loyalty and enthusiastic uh, participation. And I think this comes back again to like the ethos, the aspirational ethos uh, in elite culture right now 
it's not big enough. It's not yep. ambitious enough. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not, it's not, it needs to be more like, like, you know, it's, it's like, I want my Lamborghini and my McMansion and my like vacation in, in Croatia. Right. But it's not like, let's, let's do something great together as a society. I think we need these bigger ambitions to be able to articulate to ourselves the importance of that broader base of enthusiasm and love and justice, um, because that's what ultimately gets us there. Yeah, I, mean, I would, I would just, I, I would just add to that, um, drawing out a distinction between what what happens in the course of marketing to people, as as distinct from what happens, in, what what we might imagine happening in the course of winning somebody's lot, winning winning the loyalty of a group of people. Because I think there's right. a there's a deep qualitative difference there in the sense that you can sell things to people. You can look at ways of marketing to people while still objectifying them. You can consider them other yeah. um, in no way, in no way emotionally participate in their reality. In fact, if you if you can have some some understanding of how they think, but no emotional connection to them whatsoever, so much the better, because that that will that will make place you more strongly to manipulate a group of people. But conversely, I would I would argue that if you want to win the loyalty of a group of people, you need a, you need a more sort of participatory relationship with them. You need to consider yourself not different from them. And just yeah. bring, or, bring or perhaps perhaps different, but in a particular relationship with them, right? With responsibilities. In, in a in a particular relationship with them, you know, perhaps perhaps different different in degree, perhaps not in kind. Yeah, so so similar in in that your goals are similar. Like loyalty is based on on an alignment of of what you want, right? Like you want something, they want that something as well, or they want it for you, and you want it for them. You're you're rowing the same boat in the same direction. Like even even if you're the captain, you know but you're back rowing in the, the age same of, boat. Back in the age of kingship, you know the it was it was common for monarchs to talk about we. You know the the royal right. we was simply you know an absolutely assumed entitlement to speak on behalf of the entirety of the nation. You know, but I am I am in charge of the common good. You know, it's it's a monumental responsibility when you think about it. In in that way, and it's it's history certainly tells us that there are monarchs who abused that relationship. Um, yeah. But it's but but it's a tremendous conceptually. It's absolutely tremendous to think about. You know that 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 somebody should have should have understood themselves as embod both embodying and you know with a, with a duty and a responsibility to speak for um, an entire people. You know as as a part for a whole in a metonymic relationship. Um, yeah. And not as not as something that was different in kind and set over them necessarily, but in some respects different and set over, but in other respects also metonymically continuous with. Right. Um, an, yeah. An the, entire the, the locus of the of the political. Yeah, and and I think that's a that's a relation that's a hierarchical relationship which we've forgotten how to do, and it's perhaps time we remembered. Yeah, I th I think I just want to echo just one final thought as as we kind of close out here, but just echoing your point that that the difference between loyalty and marketing is is in some sense the same difference between relational and transactional yes absolutely um it, it's it's got to do with whether you're actually forming that kind of harmonious dialogue relationship that that has more permanence to it or whether you're just trying to manipulate someone's state of mind into something that that will that will come you know do what you want them to do and I think I think yeah that that's actually a very important 
sort of thread to pull on. Uh, I think we'll have to leave it for now, but but this gets into whole issues of kind of uh, postmodernism in, in terms of like the these sort of, I don't know if I can even articulate that problem that I'm thinking of uh, in, 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 a, in a short period of time, but, but there's this question of this difference between manipulating people into a desired state of mind versus achieving some kind of harmonious dialogue with their state of mind. Um, and, and I think that is one of the key distinctions that, that, that we need to be uh, developing uh, as we kind of go forward with this general kind of uh, intellectual pro- project that, we're, that we've been working on together here. Yeah, I agree. Great. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Mary, for coming on the show. Um, I think we made some progress here. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll have to do this again sometime. Um, Well, until next time, that's all for now. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.